So we went from literally 150 million now to 200 million. And with the airport, the airport contract was five years, a billion dollars. I've never signed a billion dollar contract in my life. And that built trust, credibility, and momentum. It's the way you tackle problems by revectoring our thinking. It completely changed the dynamic of the company. As soon as you change the language, somehow, some way, people change the way they were thinking in the organization. At the end of the day, it's just a fire in your belly to succeed. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine. I've known him for 30 years. This man is one of the most brilliant business leaders around. He has been a leader, a CEO level leader in organizations for over 25 years. This is a man who's helped many, many companies add tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to their top line and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to their bottom line. He's a man who really cares. He's a man who really understands. And I'm super excited to have him here on the show today to share his wisdom with you. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Jean Taillon. Welcome to the show, Jean. Well, thanks very much, Nikki. Appreciate being here. And uh, this is a great opportunity to share my story. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. It's my so pleasure. I'll just uh, give you a little bit of a background. I mean, uh, I'm a master's in engineering, bachelor's in engineering, MBA, M- you know, all of that kind of stuff. But really, at the end of the day, you know, it's just the focus and energy and efforts is sort of how I've kind of, you know, established my entire life. But I was like, I've been like anybody who's successful and I'll say I'm successful is you always think there's a bit of luck, but it's always a lot of hard work, you know, behind the scenes to get there. Um, but I still think the engineering background has provided me with the analytical skills to understand process. The MBA background helped me have the right language to speak to business people. But it, it, at the end of the day, it's just a fire in your belly to succeed. You know, that's the truth. That's the truth. So, Jean, um, tell me a little bit about your career. I'm, I know about your career because you and I have known each other a long time, but, yeah. I, but my listener doesn't. Let me tell you about my listener. My listener is an entrepreneur. My listener is a man or a woman who is interested in translating that fire in the belly into their dreams out there in the world. And they're here to listen to you because they want to learn from you and they want to apply that. They want to use the freedom we have in our great free enterprise system to create something of lasting value, but they can't really open themselves up to you until they know your story, man. So you got to tell us a bit more. Tell us about how your career got going. Tell us about some of the, the highs and the lows and let's go from there. Okay. Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a real long story, but you know, it's funny when you know what you want to do at a young age, it makes a huge difference. And I think since the age of about 13, 14 years old, I always wanted to lead a company. And uh, I was kind of lucky because uh, my dad worked for a large oil company at the time. And he said, you know, Jean, you're good in math. You're strong in math. Why don't you look into engineering? So I looked into engineering. 
Uh, I ended up doing grade 13, doing all the masks, getting into University of Toronto. Um, really loved the, loved the idea of the science. What I didn't like about engineers is basically analysis paralysis. And in a lot of cases, they can't sell. And uh, that was where I kind of stuck out a bit as an engineer. Uh, anyways, to make a long story short, graduated, went to uh, Nortel, had a job before I finished school. Uh, good opportunity then because Northern Telecom was a growth company at the time. As we all know, we've lost a lot of money with our shares, but it was a growth company at the time. Uh, I was manufacturing engineer and I started studying something called zero defects, the whole Kanban Japanese technology, uh, Japanese methodology, the Toyota way, all of that. And I applied that uh, in Brampton uh, on the wave solder process and uh, brought wave solder defects down from thousands down, down to less than hundreds just by doing process control. And at the age of 22, got really recognized by the folks at Nortel and ended up spending a lot of time in various plants helping these folks uh, build zero defect programs. Uh, that kind of launched my way into, uh, into going into Motorola uh, because of the background in, in zeros defects, Six Sigma. I ended up a manufacturing engineer at Motorola. And then I ended up the global product manager for limited distance modems. Uh, I was still under 30. Uh, I was working in Singapore, Hong Kong, and around the world helping these folks basically drive out cost and improve the processes. Um, decided to change my, uh, my career path a little bit and uh, ended up at a company called Unitel, where we um, launched the first long distance uh, competition against Bell. I was a new product manager at the time, introduced uh, several different products, and again, got recognized for bringing these products to market on time and on budget. And got really promoted. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, like it was like being on a roller coaster. Uh, I was promoted from manager to SVP of uh, customer service within five years. Uh, then I was picked up by Bell. Uh, spent many times at Bell. Was the CEO of a company called Connexum. And then uh, my favorite story is the one at uh, G4S. So I spent twenty five years in the technology business. Um, you know focused on, you know, improvements, focused on sales. Uh, when I was uh, started at uh, G4S, it was a security company, uh, a worldwide guarding company. And uh, I was hired because of my capabilities in outsourcing. And if you look at security, security is an outsourcing deal. But I'll just share with you the reasons why I, I was uh, selected. So this company uh, was about $150 million, uh, for about five or six years. It just didn't move, you know, at all, Nikki. And, and the issue was, you know, people were comfortable with just selling to the current base and uh, leveraging the personalities of the sales reps and not leveraging the personality of the brand. So when I, when I came in there, I sat back and I said to myself, you know, what does G4S do? Who are we? What do we represent? And how can I bring that to market? And lo and behold, at the time, we were doing mine clearing in Afghanistan. Uh, G4S was providing second layer security at the Baghdad airport. Uh, the Gurkhas were part of this uh, security team at G4S. Wow. So I, I'm thinking, you know, here we are selling, you know, hours at small malls and we've got this tremendous brand. So I relooked at our portfolio and I relooked at our clients. And again, sometimes being a CEO, you, you're kind of by yourself trying to figure this stuff out because they give you 90 days to sort of put together a plan. So my plan was, you know, where is security important and where is it necessary? So that's banks, airports, liquor stores, 
uh, pharmacies, all of those areas. The next step was, you know, how do you build the right team and infrastructure to be able to serve that market? And then how do you sell into that market? Um, the funny thing is, is when you start putting together your thinking, and if your thinking is drastically different than from what your team is used to, uh, a lot of people self-select. So during that first 90 days, you know, people were looking for work elsewhere. Uh, they thought that the whole idea of getting into banks was highly leveraged. There was lots of liability. You know, how can we do that? Why would we want to do that? So I ended up uh, dealing with a lot of attrition, people leaving the company. But then when you start sending out that message out there, uh, the right people started to join the company. So I brought on the right salespeople that wanted to sell real security to the high-risk um, verticals of that marketplace. So I was also helping uh, sell as well because, again, you know, my role is not just leading, driving, directing, managing, coaching, uh, philosophizing, and all that. But part of your role as well is to, to go out and tell your story, tell a company's story to everybody. So uh, behind the scenes, I was working on the uh, CATSA project, which is providing all of the security screening for the airports. Uh, I was trying to get us on the bidders list, trying to pitch. And again, the pitch was a, the same pitch, you know. Uh, G4S has 650,000 employees worldwide, second larger, largest employer next to Walmart. Uh, we do mine clearing, all of that stuff. We do the airport screening at Heathrow. So that got a lot of uh, enthusiasm and actually got us on the vendor list, uh, which was quite a feat. And in parallel to that, I was working with the banks. And some of the key things that I was trying to get into the banks was, how do you prove to a bank that you're actually doing what you're doing? So I was thinking about my process days, thinking about my Six Sigma days, and I developed a scorecard. And that scorecard would show the number of hours, number of events, number of incidents, number of tickets, all of these various things. And we would track that weekly, monthly. And the idea was we would have a meeting with the security office once a month and just show what we were doing. And that gave them actual clarity on what they're spending money on. And it provided some value. And the part I liked about it was, you know, stuff always happens in life. Uh, all entrepreneurs know that. And the way to validate when stuff happens is to show a track record or show some data. I mean, no matter how hard you try, you know, deliveries won't happen, guards won't show up, things don't happen. But if you're showing them, you know, I've been green for the last eight months and this is a one-time incident and this is what we're going to do about it. Um, but those are always the corrective actions. So we ended up winning that bank, that bank and uh, the momentum just started to happen from there. So we went from literally 150 million now to 200 million. And with the airport, the airport contract was five years, a billion dollars. And I've never signed a billion dollar contract in my life. I remember I was with my CFO and we're taking pictures and sending it across the company. And, and that built trust, credibility and momentum. Um, but you know, it's, the, it's just the way you, it's the way you tackle problems. Cause the other issue I had was, you know, I was running a cash business and, you know, typically people call it Brinks trucks, but we had our own trucks. There were G4S trucks and money at 2% isn't worth keeping. So, you know, I started thinking with the team, you know, what are we really doing? Um, you know, we're a value in transit company. And it just so happens cash is valuable and we move that. So by re-vectoring our thinking, we ended up moving Oxycontin for Shoppers Drug Mart. We ended up moving art, gold, legal papers, not just money. 
And it completely changed the dynamic of the company to a point where, you know, we were no longer just moving cash where, you know, for the three banks or for the retailers, but now we had a wide portfolio of, of products and services that we were selling across the board. And the story was so successful that about two years after implementing this strategy, we were bought out for 12 times Pepita. So literally, literally, you know, um, I would call it almost a money loot. I mean, if you think about the business model, you've got two people in a truck, you know, average price, you know, 25 bucks an hour per person. So you're talking $50, moving packages at $45 a package times three, you get three packages per hour. I mean, it's a money losing proposition. So by changing the portfolio of, of what you're selling really made a huge difference. And the other thing we ended up doing is rethinking, you know, why spend the whole day stuck in traffic? So we thought, you know, let's talk to our clients and see if we can pick up and deliver after hours. So we actually moved three quarters of our workforce to after six o'clock at night until five in the morning. And that way we basically could do four, five, six deliveries per hour and, uh, and, and make some real money. So again, going back to, you know, how do you, how are you successful? And it's, it's really understanding the process, being able to analyze your business, uh, being able to bounce ideas off uh, a bunch of different people in a room, surrounding yourself with, I always surrounded myself with different people. Uh, I know where my strengths are. I know where, where my weaknesses are. So I usually add the folks that can fill for my weaknesses on my team. And I always think, you know, where there's friction, there's traction. And, uh, you know, where there's revenue, there's oxygen. So if you keep those things in mind, uh, and the last one is where there's mystery, there's margin. Uh, if you can keep those things in mind, you can actually be quite successful. That's a hell of a story. Let me unpack that for my listener, okay? Because I think there's a lot of value that we can extract from that if, if we do that in a systematic fashion. So, so the first thing that I got out of what you shared is you would come to a business that had been successful but it had gotten, you know, fat, dumb, and happy, as it were. Yep. Right, <laughs> like 150 million is a good business, right? That there's nothing wrong with that business, and there were people that were doing quite well with it, and there wasn't a lot of incentive on their part to grow the business, at least from an internal point of view. You came in because you were brought in with a mandate to shake that up and change that, and you started to rethink what the business was all about. Now, in order for a business to grow, you need to rethink what business it's really in. You know, Tony Robbins has a program he, he does called Business Mastery, and he asks a couple questions in there. He said, what business are you in? And then what business are you really in? It looks like you asked those questions and answered them very powerfully, correct? That's right. No, that's right. No, it's, that's a, it's a good way to place it. I mean, in fact, they didn't want me to shake up the business. Um, they want the thought was, and this is a, a funny story. I mean, uh, it's a British company. So head office is in England, uh, but we reported into the U S we reported to the Americas, but somehow somewhere the Americas were convinced that, you know, Canada is a safe country. People live with unlocked doors. Therefore, why do they need security? So, you know, the, the organization was, was fine. It was running well, Sean, we just need you to sort of keep running it. Uh, everything's great. Um, but when I came in, you know, I just said to myself, I see so much potential here. And as you mentioned, you know, you know, what business are we really in? And, you know, we're in the security business. We're not just in the revenue generation, cash flow neutral business. We're in a, a growth business. And, 
you know, if you look at what's happening in the world, I mean, you need to protect yourself, you need to protect your investments, and you need to protect your sites. And what what made me laugh a little bit was the adversity to risk. And to me, the whole beauty about this business is is, is taking the risk. And you know, again, many. I mean, it was, it was a great tour. I mean, literally, when I uh, we did G eight, G twenty uh, in Toronto. Uh, in fact, we were at the outer perimeter for the Toronto police. So our jobs was basically to, to tell the police uh, through a centralized system, you know, how many people were coming in, what was going on, checking the backpacks, doing all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I mean, we were a valued part of that whole whole process, right? But to your point, yeah, rethinking the business, what business are you in, but what business are you really in? We were in the security business. Yeah. And you talked about um one aspect of the business, which was having, you know, trucks that moved money around, you rethought that aspect of the business. I mean, we're, we're not moving money around. That's not our service here. We're protecting value in transit. Yeah. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. Value in transit means that there's a whole lot of other products that need to be protected in transit that aren't being protected properly. And you managed to, to see that and you, you exposed that vulnerability to clients and you got a whole bunch of other organizations that in the past would have never dreamed of using your security trucks to use your security trucks. And that exploded the business. And that's what I mean about what's the business you're in versus what's the business you're really in. Because people would say, well, the business we're in is we got security trucks that move money. We move money, right? And yeah, you know, yeah. no, no, no. We're, I'm we're in the business of providing transit, right? value in transit. I thought that was brilliant. And, and, and to your point, I mean, to me, what I what I learned early on, it's the power of language. So as soon as you change the language, somehow, some way, people change the way they were thinking in the organization. You know, from the uh, driver of the truck carrying the, the 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 values through to accounting, through to the salespeople changed their thinking. We're no longer just a cash movement business. You know, we're a valued movement business. And that opened up, you know, whole new avenues for people and for people's thinking. And the clients, uh, you know, I mean, you know, at the time, one of the large drugstores was getting held up frequently uh, prior to the packages arriving. And as soon as we came on board with, you know, two people with guns, uh, a lot of that issue went away. Uh, <laughs> and it literally, we're not talking that much more money than a FedEx. I mean, literally, it was probably 3 to $5 more. But you knew your staff were safe. And you knew your product would be safe. And best, of, best for anything, you knew that this product was not hitting the streets. So the ROI for that organization must have been huge to hire you. Well, we, we went, we were, you know, this is the, tr- the honest to God truth. We were below... We were below zero on EBIT. We were losing money. And after three years with all of the changes that we made, and, and I, we didn't lay anybody off. Like I said, we changed the shifts uh, to, to you know, basically allocate more of the resources towards the evenings to get more rides. Uh, the sales expanded um, and, and we had more clients and we ended up at 7% EBIT, which was quite a bit at the time for that kind of business. And, you know, we took a half a billion dollar company that was earning zero to, you know, half a billion company that's earning 7% of that, which was kind of nice, right? And that was, again, you know, without layoffs, without anything, it's just rethinking the business. 
And an interesting piece of it, again, talking like business is people and, you know, and I always believe and, and I think you call your, your listeners believe this as well. I mean, most people are rational human beings that have mortgages and families that understand life. And, you know, I had the Teamsters Union and it was, a you know, people say, oh, you're dealing with a union must be terrible. No, no. We just laid it out on the table. We just said, I showed the numbers, had a conversation with them, said, look, think about it. You've got, you know, operating costs of X. If we ran it at a different time of day, we can basically now generate revenues, which mitigates, you know, layoffs, which keeps people employed. And your jobs are becoming a lot more interesting. Now you're not just going to banks, but you're going all around. You're going to have more deliveries per route. Um, So the union got, got on board pretty quickly because they believed in the vision and they believed that we were actually transitioning the business to the right type of business. And they felt their folks were undervalued. And this was a way of actually giving people decent wages and decent increases because of our success. So, you know, it's all about language, but understanding and, and, and working together. And it sounds really mundane and it sounds trivial, but, you know, time and time again, as I reflect back on my career, it's always been the same thing. It's kind of look for that nugget, figure out how best to communicate that nugget. And as you communicate that, you know, like-minded individuals will, will come on board. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So you, you managed to bring the existing, uh, union on board, which a lot of people think is difficult, but really isn't because of the reasons that you said. These are all human beings who have the same issues that everybody else is dealing with, and they wanted the company to succeed because that meant they could preserve their jobs. But what I thought was cool about what you did for the um, for those companies that you started offering the value and transit services that, are, that, that were getting held up before you guys came on board is they brought you on board. And they stopped getting held up. I bet you the ROI on that must have been huge for them to not get held up a couple of times yeah. a week. Yeah, no, it was it was it was good. I mean, I mean, all in all, I mean, you know, the return on investment was was, was solid across the board. And you know, and I'll just do one more example. And you know, I worked for Bell, and I was um, SVP of sales at Bell, and uh, they gave me what they call the underserved market. And the underserved market was clients under a million dollars. And uh, I started, you know, spent a weekend sorting through the space and I started realizing that, you know, you had Inco in there, you had the Fasco in there, you had a whole pile of large clients. And as I started to analyze it, I realized, oh, I've got a manufacturing sector, I've got a hospitality sector, I've got a, a municipality sector. And once you start breaking up that information... Then we were finally able to hire and and train the right people around those clusters and better yet, start building products around those clusters. So like the the cash in transit that became valuables in transit, now we realized these these clients that were billing under a million dollars were still amazing clients. It's just we never had the right products for them. And until you categorized it into the right categories, you didn't know what they wanted. I mean, a hospitality client need something very different than a manufacturing client when it comes to products and services, you know, maybe it's digital signage, maybe it's Wi-Fi in the, in the store, you know, it, it might be a whole pile of different things, but, but, you know, when you go in with a, the same solution across multiple verticals, uh, you're not going to maximize those opportunities. So by finding the common denominator and finding common facts, we were able to, you know, branch out and find products that, you know, and again, this space went from 300 to 600 million within two years. And it was the same thing. It was 
people started to buy from us because they realized now we finally had products that met their needs. I wasn't just selling minutes and, and uh, data plans. We were actually selling solutions that helped their business uh, became more successful. Sounds to me like a key part of the success that you were able to engender for the folks that you worked with was you were ready to show them how to rethink things. You looked at the business and you said, okay, this is the business. This is what's going well. This is what's not going well. And this is what needs to be rethought. Like if you've got, for example, these customers that are underserved doing under a million, it's not that they're bad clients. It's just the way that they were being served by the organization wasn't meeting their needs. So by turning that approach around, you were able to double the business of the business unit in a very short period of time. I mean, 300 million to 600 million for an organization like Bell, that's crazy. That's, that's amazing. So it was, it was great. And, and again, I mean, it actually reestablished, like we had one, well, one large pizza company that, you know, you can see the digital signage everywhere now. And we kind of brought that to market for them, you know, 15 years ago. So stuff that they use now as as we all see as everyday tools were stuff that we were pioneering because a bunch of people finally said, oh, my clients, you know, fast food restaurants. If I was a fast food restaurant, what do I need? Well, I need a point of sale. I need a this, I need a that. And then we were able to come up with bundles and solutions. And I used to call it, you know, retail in a box or store in a box. You pay a fixed price every month. You get the following five services easy for the retailer or, or the uh, the small shop owner because now they're not worried about five different bills um, and it's simple stuff for them and we upgrade it every few years and they're happy with what, what you've sold them. Awesome. Simplicity, right? I mean, there's nothing, I mean, one of the things I always find frustrating with me is just, you know, people make things complicated. It's not, yes. shouldn't be complicated. Oh, <laughs> you know? I get it. And I, you know, I kind of think, you know, it's gotta be, you know, intuitive. And I've always believed that solutions should be intuitive, organizations should be intuitive, and when you're selling, it should be intuitive. It you know if it becomes too complicated if you're doing Schrodinger equations or heat flow equations. Then I thought, okay, you, you're, you've crossed the line. Hundred percent. So let's talk about some of the mistakes people make on the way to growing their business. So if someone's got a business, let's just say, for sake of argument, it's you know, a $10 million business. And let's say they want to take this $10 million business to a $100 million business. Let's even say it's a it's a startup company that has visions of grandeur like I do, and they want yeah. to take their business to a $100 million business. First of all, what are some mistakes that companies make? What are the most common mistakes that they make that they need to avoid? Well, you know, and again, just, just speaking on my behalf, I mean, you know, being in love with your, your own idea is great, but you've got to basically be able to step outside and understand what that idea is. And then once you can understand what that idea is, then you can understand, you know, how do you take it to market? And, and you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, the biggest issue you have typically with being a small company is how do you get your brand out there? How do you get recognized and how do you get people to know who you are? So I think if you can solve that and, and you know, and if you look at my, my history, I, I, I worked for four multinational companies. So I was lucky. I never had to worry about the brand and I could typically open a door to a sales call because I would say I was from Bell, AT&T or G4S. 
Now I'm in a small company, a family-owned company. It's a lot harder. So I think partially, you know, when you're starting off with a startup is, is how do you get your brand out there? How do you get your product out there? And how do you sell? And how do you get that information? And I think that is the, the million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. And you've got to think about, you know, where, like, like we did with the cash in transit and we converted it, you know, where can I apply it? So, you know, something like a sales training organization, like, you know, who needs it? Everybody needs sales training, but you're cluttered. There's a lot of people doing it. So how do you differentiate yourself? How do you find the right partners? You know, how do you connect? And that, that's probably one of the hardest things. It really is, you know. Well, there's a lot of hustle and grit that's required at that stage, right? I mean, you've got to be willing to pick up the phone. You've got to be willing to do things like you and I are doing with some things that we've been up to, like yeah. uh, have dinners and you got to be willing to to do podcasts. you got to be willing to write books. I think all of those things will help. And and bottom line, you got to talk to people belly to belly or virtual yeah. belly to belly, as it were. What are some other things really that people don't realize can get in the way. Yeah, I, I'm just going to go back though. I mean, the other thing that that I think as well becomes an issue is is you know being in, too in love with your ideas. So I, I also think having the flexibility to sell to people, sell with people, and sell through them, I think adds a lot of value as well. On that last point, uh, some of the things that get in your way, um, you know, there's a lot of things. I, again. Being an entrepreneur, being a leader, you've got to basically be able to self-reflect. So, you know, and, and the quiet time is important. And, and you and I are both large fitness advocates. I think, you know, going on a long run in the morning helps you sort of sort out, you know, some of the fundamental things you need to figure out as you're trying to grow a business. So, I mean, to me, it's, again, in, in some of the cases that you and I are working on is, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you get people to want to listen to your ideas? And then how do you get people to want to buy what you're trying to sell? So what value are you actually giving to them? And I think the value we bring on this podcast today is, is the value of how do you grow business? And, you know, everybody says, I need sales, I need sales. Well, it's not always, you don't always need sales. I mean, some of the best salespeople are, are the owners of the company. I mean, what value are you trying to bring? How do you get that message out there? Um, and that, uh, that's key. So, I mean, in some cases it's, you know, do you have to join associations? Do you have to go to conferences? Do you have to go to trade shows, speaking engagements? Does that help? It could, but it's, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's all I can say. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of, you know, and I can't remember what the stats are. What's the stat for a good baseball player, you know, but you hit 10% or 7% and you're a, starting it's the same in business i mean you know in fact in business we're even less i mean i have to hit probably 70 80 percent if i'm below that i I'm, I'm lose my job typically so yeah i mean uh, you've got to you know target uh find the right people and uh, provide the right solutions at the right price at the right time yeah yeah there's no question all of that's true I, I like what you said about sell to, sell with, and sell through. I think that's very powerful. Can you break that down? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's something I've always believed in. I mean, some of the problems I've had with some of the larger companies is they, want, they wanted to have their brand in front. So I would rather, you know, be part of a bigger solution 
um, and still make my 10 or 15 or 30 mar- points margin, then not win at all. Mm-hmm. So if you can find partners to sell with, so, you know, if I'm trying to think of something that that's complimentary, but if I wanted to sell, you know, ice cream and chocolate sauce, well, you team up with the Hershey's chocolate sauce and you sell the ice cream and there's a sell with, you know, if you want to sell two, you're selling to the ice cream uh, sandwich company and you're selling the ice cream in the middle, you know, and if you're selling, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just kind of what you do. So you've got to find opportunities and leverage those opportunities. And sometimes your brand and or your company may be Intel inside. And sometimes it might be the brand that's sold. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Yeah. I, I really like that. I think that's great. So you've got your, your company, you've built it to the number, which we're going to call hundred million today. It could be different from, for certain other people. But yeah. what, once you've done that, what happens then? What really well, should you be thinking about? I'll just share with you, and this is just my own personal experience. I mean, I think between 10 and 100 million, you don't have the resources uh, to delegate what you need to delegate to keep the company growing. And that's a big problem. So, I mean, once you hit 100 million, you can hire that marketing individual, or you can do the advertising that you need, or you can hire the support staff. Uh, But getting there typically, I mean, right now I'm doing stuff I've never done before. I mean, I'm doing it all in order to do that. So, I'm in a Currently in a, in a family-owned business, it's 35 years old. It's very well 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 known in the industry. It's about 40 million dollars. Uh, we sell telecommunication equipment and telecommunication solutions. They brought me on board to get them to 100 million. Right now, we're working on uh, 5G strategies uh, with the telcos in order to provide them with products that they don't have today and they can't get. So. And it's small stuff, uh, Nikki. I mean, it's not sexy stuff. It's stuff like antennas, power, fiber cables, batteries. But at the end of the day, if you can package these things properly and, and provide like a turnkey solution for them where each lamppost can have a battery, uh, an antenna, and a couple of cables, and they can install hundreds of these things, you solve their problem. So, I mean, so the, just going back, that's kind of the journey I'm on right now. And that journey will get us to $100 million. Um, but I mean, from now until then, it's, you know, it's a small team of engineers and salespeople and, and clients that are sort of working together to make this happen. Once we get to the $100 million, which is kind of nice, then we may end up uh, doing some of the manufacturing ourselves because right now it's third party. We may bring some of the logistics in-house because we're using third party. We can take a lot more control and it'd be nice to hire some marketing people to market this, you know, elsewhere in the world. Cause right now we're landlocked for Canada only. Um, the reason why obviously is, you know, it's a small company and it's hard to, to go South or North or across the ocean, but these solutions are ubiquitous around the world. I mean, other than, you know, 220 power versus 110 or whatever else you're looking at. I mean, we could pretty well export it all around the world, but it's getting there. So, you know, Part of the, the, the opportunity is I think we found two large clients willing to invest and they're willing to invest, you know, a lot, which is going to make a huge difference. Uh, how we got there was, you know, 35 years of being able to solve smaller problems for them. Um, I came on board with a bigger picture. Uh, I think the bigger picture opened up their lenses quite a bit and said, oh, okay, you can do more than just antennas. You can do an entire turnkey solution. Um, that's where the wow factor came in. That's kind of like, again, the cash and transit story. 
Um, but that was kind of the things that we're doing. And that's the stuff that, you know, you and I want to do with people. We want you to come and, and, and let's have conversations to figure out, you know, what's stopping you from getting to a hundred million. Yeah. Uh, you know, we may not have the answers, but you know, as we walk through the, the, the process, what you're focused on, the markets that you're thinking about, the people you have in your team, the potential partners from other folks, maybe there's ways there you can get to a hundred million or better. What a hundred million allows you to do is it allows you hire. It allows you to have resources that my friend is what I believe is powerful, right? There's a lot of people that don't understand that. They, they think that, you know, hundred million is just a good sexy number. It, 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 it's going to gratify my ego. Look, I run a hundred million dollar company. Look at how cool I am. But yeah. that's not what it does. hundred million is actually a point of humility. It's a point where you've got the resources to be able to really do more things. Cause at the end of the day, John, all business is about solving problems for people, solving acute problems that people badly want solved. So if you have a hundred million dollar a year business, that means you're solving problems for a lot of people and you're doing a good job of solving those problems because enough of them trust you to continue to go there. It, it's, it's almost a custodianship because at a hundred million, you're being told you've, you've got the ability now with the resources that this amount of business is giving you to serve even more people. Yeah. You're going to make a lot of money and we're fans. We're capitalists. We're big fans of all that, but you're going to get to solve more people. What I love about capitalism, what I love about freedom, what I love about voluntary exchange, John, is that it allows you really to grow and help people better because no other system allows you to do that. So a hundred million dollar corporation, if it's run by the right folks, is going to solve more problems for more people. Amen. I agree with you there. hundred percent. I mean, you know, and then with, with further growth, further employment, hopefully brings further growth and, uh, you know, and the sky's the limit. And again, I think it also makes the CEO's job a lot easier once you get to that kind of scale, because now you have, smarter people surrounding you and, and you've got a lot more support. So yeah, you're right. You know, I've been thinking about um, knowing you and having these conversations with you has opened my eyes to be thinking bigger. So I was thinking about, Hey, it'd be cool to run a group or two or three, you know, I'd, I'd make a great living doing it and I'd have a lot of fun. That's what I was thinking. But now I'm thinking, you know, there's value for what we're doing. We could actually help tons of people. There's a need for what we're doing. There's a need for us to, to serve a certain kind of CEO, a certain kind of individual that, that is not being served by other groups that are out there. And if we do that, those folks are going to feel like their itch is being scratched, their problems being solved, but they're also going to feel like they're part of a greater community that really has their back and isn't one of these communities that says they have their back, but really doesn't and is just going with the wind. That's one of the things that I think is missing today. Organizations that live their values and care about their members and aren't twisting with the wind with whatever the culture says is cool right now, but rather they're, they're staying true to time-tested values, time-tested truths, and time-tested honorable ways of behavior. And that's what makes me excited Knowing Jean Tayon has opened my eyes on how to think bigger. So God bless you for that, brother. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nikki.
This was really good. Yeah. And I think I think what you're bringing to the table here is great because, again, as I mentioned, I think a little earlier, you know, being an entrepreneur or being a leader is a lonely job. And sometimes it's nice to be able to get on the balcony, see the future, see the vision, but also sit around the fire after a good hunting day and being able to share the stories with other hunters and really understand where they're going. So I think uh, what you're bringing is incredible. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Oh, brother, thank you. God bless you, man. It's, it's my pleasure. My God, I feel honored. I feel honored that you're here. It's really great. So, Jean, if people want to find out more about some of your philosophies or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can email me at uh, jean.taillon at uppercarlisle.com, U-P-P-E-R-C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E.com, or on LinkedIn, uh, Jean-Pierre Taillon. Awesome. We'll make sure we put all that information in the show notes so that people can uh, get in touch with you. You and I are doing a couple presentations uh, together. There's one we're doing on on how to how to build a hundred million dollar business. I'm excited about that, and I, I believe it's going to go well. And we're going to get to do it a few more times. So we'll, we'll give that a shameless plug here as well. And um, I think it's a I think it's a great opportunity. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be an excellent workshop. And yeah, it's going to be me good. Too. Me too. Me too. Um, and you know, I, I also think it's it's important for people to really take our message to heart that getting to 100 million is less about you. It's less about pumping out your chest and, and, and having your ego given a boost and more about the, having given you a custodianship over making a difference in a bigger way. And I think that's powerful and amazing. So, yeah. yeah. So, listener, make sure that you... Um, Make sure that you share this episode with someone that needs to hear it. Okay. We don't, we don't charge for this episode. They're free. We don't even have a sponsor for this episode. So the only payment that I ask of you is that if you got value, share it with someone who needs to hear the message and make sure that you get in touch with Sean, go on LinkedIn, get in touch with him. He's given out his email address, take advantage of that as well. And uh, we'll make sure that all that happens. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Jean Taillon, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or go to wherever you happen to listen to this podcast, be it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or Audible. And until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.